Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, good morning, or I guess good afternoon, if perhaps you slept in this morning being a bit lazy, or maybe even you've procrastinated all day and it is now evening, and so I say good evening. Well, regardless of what time it is, we are glad that you have joined us today, and we invite you to take your copy of God's Word and be finding 1 John chapter 4, and we will be looking at the first six verses. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, one of the debates that is going on during this pandemic has been the relationship between government and the church. We've long heard about the separation of church and state, and so the question now is, why is the government telling us what we can and can't do? That is the question that is dividing Christians yet again, with some saying that the government has every right to do this, After all, they're trying to help us stop a deadly virus. They are not just trying to prohibit us from meeting. They are doing this for our own health. And therefore, we submit to the government in this matter for the sake of the common good. Others, however, are saying they have no right. And they are fearful that this is just one stage or step down that proverbial slippery slope that will lead to more government control over our worship and practice. To be sure, there have been some oversteps, or what I might call extreme cases, like perhaps you read about the one in Chattanooga, where Chattanooga authorities were saying that it was not possible to meet together in drive-in services. Even though people were going to stay in their cars and therefore stay separated, they were prohibiting such drive-in services. But they were sued because of that, and a couple of days later, they changed their minds and allowed the practice. I suppose the most extreme case that I've read about so far comes from a county in California. No surprise there. But they were outlawing singing during online worship services. They passed an ordinance that said there could not be any singing in these types of services with one exception, and that exception was if the singing took place in a residence rather than a church. My guess is what they were trying to do was to stop groups of people meeting together at a church in order to produce a worship service out of fear that that group would be larger than ten. And in fact, to be honest with you, we had a few more than 10 here, just a few moments ago. And so I understand what they were trying to do, but I'm not sure it was the right way to do it. They were trying to make sure that groups like ours don't go over the limit, and yet not quite understanding that in larger sanctuaries where there would be more than 10 people, we could still safely socially distance. Sometimes when I read either side of a contested argument, I wonder if we've lost all ability to discern between what is true and false, what is good or bad, or what is right or wrong. We seem to just want to lump everything and everyone into one category without being able to tell the difference. And oftentimes we have our mind made up already, and therefore those things that agree with what we already believe are the right things, 
and everything else is, frankly, ridiculous. Here, as in so many other cases in life, what we need is a healthy balance. You see, some people are skeptics. That is, they do not believe anything or anyone, and they are constantly filled with doubt and questions. There's always a conspiracy behind everything going on, some sort of sinister plot behind the information that we are receiving. While others are gullible, believing everything and everyone, their favorite phrases seems to be stuff like, well, I heard or I read, as if to say that everything that is in print or on audiovisual must certainly be true. The truth must lie somewhere in between, being skeptical of everything or gullible of everything. Now, of course, I'm not primarily interested in whether you have the right facts about the virus. Now, this is not a, a sermon about the, the data that is out there and that you are reading that is predicting when we might begin flattening the curve and therefore we can go back to normal life. I'm not overly interested in what you think about the future course of information or whether or not your view on when things should open up and why, or what the consequences might be if all of this happens too quickly or too slowly. Instead, I'm talking about a greater danger than all of these things. You see, as concerned as we might be about the government overreach in the church, that is not our primary danger. The greatest danger has always been not from those outside the church, whether they might be those who are opposed to Christ or government authorities. The greatest danger has always been within the church. That was true in biblical days, and it continues to be true today. So from 1 John chapter 4 and the first six verses, I, I want to talk to you today about all of us having some healthy skepticism. Now, I use those two words on purpose, healthy, because I'm not advocating that we go to the extremes and become skeptical of everything and everybody. But skepticism is necessary because discernment is necessary. And again, I'm not talking about the ability to tell the difference between fake news and true news. I'm talking about spiritual matters this morning as we try to do every Sunday morning. So let's look at these six verses. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit 
of error. So again, we are talking this morning about having a healthy skepticism when it comes to spiritual matters. And so taking into account our culture and the climate of our day, I feel like I must begin with the necessity of healthy skepticism. And I say that because I'm confident there are some, perhaps many, who would say that this is not at all necessary. We should, by nature, believe those who are in authority over us, whether they be secular or spiritual leaders. And while I would like to agree with that conclusion, I cannot, because of the sinful nature of all mankind. And just to be clear, this is not simply me being prone in this direction, or this is not about a personality bent or trait. The necessity of healthy skepticism is, first of all, a biblical command. You will recall that we ended last week with the first occasion of the word spirit in this letter. So go back to the last verse of chapter 3. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And I said last week that that was the introduction to what was going to be talked about moving forward. And so as we turn the page to chapter 4, John is giving us more detail about the Spirit who resides within us. The Spirit whom God has given to us as His children is one form of confirmation or assurance that we truly are the children of God. And the Spirit within us then is the source of our strength in order that we might accomplish all of the other things we've been talking about in this letter, such as abiding in Christ and loving one another. But that, of course, begs the question, how do I know that I'm being led by the Spirit of God versus some other spirit that is not from God? And that is the question that forms everything he's talking about in these first six verses. It's somewhat like the idea of being in love. You remember back when you were young, you were quick to believe and even proclaim that you were in love. When the new boyfriend or girlfriend came around, you were quick to tell them and others that this indeed was true love. And we did not appreciate it when others might question that. When others would say to us, are you sure? We would get defensive and even angry and say, yes, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I just know. Or perhaps you might even say, well, I've got those butterflies in my stomach, whatever that means. Butterflies in my stomach. Well, does that mean that I'm nervous or anxious because I do in fact love someone, or did I just have some bad Mexican food last night? I mean, if indeed there's even the possibility of bad Mexican food. Well, John is cognizant of all of this, not in the area of love here, but in the area of the Spirit. That is, there is some confusion, some doubt as to whether you and I have the Spirit of God within us, or we might be being led by some other kind of spirit. And so chapter 4 opens with these words, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. The word believe and the word test are both imperative, which means they are commands, biblical commands. The word test means putting something to rigorous examination 
to determine whether or not it is genuine. It is the same word that Paul uses in the passage in 1 Corinthians that we often use during the Lord's Supper, where he encourages us to examine ourselves before partaking. And in fact, in the second letter to that same church, he uses the word again to say, examine yourself to see whether or not you are really in the faith. And in 2 Thessalonians, in a more general statement concerning spiritual truth, He says simply, examine everything carefully. So the idea of the necessity of healthy skepticism, or what we might call discernment, is a New Testament biblical command. But it is not just found in the New Testament. It is also found repeatedly in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy specifically instructed the Israelites to examine the prophets to see whether or not what they said had come true. That is one of the marks of whether a man was truly speaking from God and was therefore a prophet is whether or not what he said actually happened. In fact, you recently read an example of this very thing. If you're doing our Bible reading with us and... If you are caught up, which, with all of this extra time on your hands, how can we not be? But regardless of that, last Sunday, we were in the latter portions in our readings of the book of 1 Kings. And in that portion, there was a prophet by the name of Micaiah. Now, King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat wanted Micaiah to prophesy victory for them in a battle against Syria something that some 400 prophets had already done. But they wanted Micaiah to weigh in as well. But Micaiah, being a true prophet of the Lord, said that they would not be victorious in battle. Instead, they would be defeated and, in fact, die in battle. And as a result, he was hauled off to prison until they returned safely. But as Micaiah was being led away to prison, he said this, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. You see, this Old Testament prophet knew that if his prophecy did not come true, then he was no spokesman for God. But this is not only necessary for healthy skepticism, or again, what we might call discernment. Because it is a biblical command, it is also necessary because it is a practical reality especially in our day and age where many people's favorite statement or verse of the Bible is, judge not, lest you be judged. The one phrase that so many people in our culture know and take out of context to mean that we have no right to question anyone about anything, which of course is not what that verse means in context. John is very clear here that it is necessary that we have this because... Many false prophets have gone out. Just because a man claims to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, just because someone claims to have received God and His Spirit, or even to speak in the name of God, does not necessarily mean that it is genuine. Jesus Himself predicted the coming of such false prophets and said they would come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, They are ravenous wolves. In other words, they would look an awful lot like us, but their intent and their teaching would be vastly 
different. And that is what makes all of this so difficult. False prophets or false teachers do not come announcing their intention to lead us astray. They come dressed very much like we do, carrying the same Bibles that we do, maybe a different translation, but the same Bible nevertheless, and therefore they are hard to spot. But the Bible tells us again that they will arise, these are Jesus' words, they will arise and mislead many. Now, by nature, false prophets, and I know we don't use the term prophets in, in our denomination, but just think false teachers or preachers, they appear to be genuine. And there are plenty of them who are not speaking the truth, and therefore they are false. But again, by nature, they appear to be genuine, and thus they are difficult to discern. Now, I am not saying that they are all consciously leading people astray. It is possible that they themselves are deceived, and because of that, they are deceiving others. But regardless of their motives, we must be on our guard. Paul is rightfully strong in his denunciation of these false teachers. He writes in Galatians that people who preach another gospel are to be accursed or condemned. This is such a prevalent topic throughout the New Testament. Paul speaks of it often. Clearly, John does. That's what we're dealing with. Jude does as well, just to name a few. And if it is that prevalent in the New Testament, we certainly must acknowledge that it is still a pressing issue today. And that is why it is a practical reality, because it is remaining a pressing problem. But I also want you to realize that this biblical command which is a practical reality, is also a very rare discipline. This goes back to what I said at the outset. There are many who are gullible, they believe everything, and test nothing. There are others who are overly skeptical, and they criticize and call out everything. There are actually Christian websites whose task is to call out every word or teaching or writing of some of the more prominent evangelical leaders, and in doing so, they leap well beyond the facts to talk about their heart and their motives. I am certainly not calling for that. We've got enough of that. I'm calling healthy skepticism, and I'm saying it's a rare discipline because few can find this healthy balance. I think it's rare, either because we've bought into the prevailing mood of our society, which is that word tolerance, that we cannot say anything to anyone about anything, we just don't want to get involved, or we don't want to run the risk of being criticized ourselves for being obedient to God's command. And so we are often hesitant to call out anyone who carries a Bible or quotes a Scripture or we are hesitant to question their success or their statistics for fear of going against God or going against God's anointed or seemingly being jealous of their success. But again, listen to the Apostle Paul. He writes, this is in 2 Corinthians, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. 
In other words, what Paul is saying there, he's being critical of them. He's being critical of the fact or the tendency that they were readily accepting those who were coming preaching something different than what Paul had taught them. A different gospel with a different spirit from a different Jesus. And he was upset that they were readily accepting this. And so the danger remains today, perhaps more so because of the ready availability of all kinds of teaching at our fingertips, something I will come back to in a moment. The fact is, we take this seriously in other areas of our lives. We pay for a home inspection before we purchase a home because we do not want to find out something negative about the home after we have already purchased it, some fault that is going to cost us money. We examine a car before we buy it, especially if it's a used car, sometimes even going to the extent of taking it to a mechanic to get their opinion about the car, because again, we do not want to sign the papers and find out later that the salesman has duped us, and now we are facing the consequences. I mean, even in simpler matters of life, we are careful to examine, or at least we should be, like looking at a menu before we order a meal. I mean, do you remember back to the time when we used to go out to restaurants and look at a menu and order a meal? Tracy often gets on to me because I don't read the details. And then when my meal comes, I'm upset about something that's in it that I don't like. And she reminds me that I didn't read the description. A year or so ago, we were talking about going to a breakfast place in the old city called Ali B's. We had been talking about it for some time, and we had never been. It has since moved to another down, downtown location. And then I was watching a college basketball game. Do, do you remember the time when we used to watch live sports on TV? I was watching a college basketball game last spring. And as part of the broadcast, the, the announcers on the broadcast had gone to a local restaurant and filmed it. They had gone to Ali B's for breakfast. And so they did a clip on that during the game, and it looked good, and so that was the final straw. We decided we too would go to that restaurant, and so we went the next week. And when I got there, I didn't look at the menu because I knew what I wanted. I wanted the omelet that Jimmy Dykes had ordered. Jimmy Dykes is one of the college basketball commentators, and the omelet that he had ordered looked very, very good. And so when the waitress came to the table, I had no need to look at the menu. I simply said, I want the Jimmy Dykes omelet. She had no idea what I was talking about. And so I said to her, who Jimmy Dykes is? She still had no idea. I said, go ask the cook. So she comes back a few minutes later, and indeed the cook does know who Jimmy Dykes is. And in fact, he has had this order multiple times since Jimmy Dykes was there. And therefore, he knew what I wanted, and my omelet was on the way. And so a few minutes later, I got the Jimmy Dykes omelet. And indeed, it looked very good but looks can be deceiving. I quickly discovered that there was some green stuff in that omelet that I initially thought was spinach, which was bad enough. But it turns out it was collard greens, which was worse. And there was a lot of it. So by the time I finished my omelet, there I had a half a plate full of collard greens because I had to pick through them all because I wasn't about to eat it. All the while, hearing that loving reminder from Tracy that all of this was my own fault because I had never bothered to ask what was actually in 
the omelet. Well, if we don't follow the biblical command for healthy skepticism or biblical discernment, we're going to wind up with something far worse than collard greens in our omelet. If we don't test the spirits, we're not going to like what we get. Well, I hope I've at least convinced you of the necessity of healthy skepticism, but the question then becomes, especially in light of the two extremes that we have already talked about and the rare discipline that this is, how do we practice healthy skepticism? That's sort of the problem we're dealing with in our world now, right? Uh, The government is starting to say we're going to loosen restrictions, we're going to open things back up, But we don't have all the details yet. We don't have all of the, how is this going to work, questions answered. But John doesn't leave us in the dark here. He gives us the tests of healthy skepticism. The first test is to examine their confession. Look again at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Here's the first test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And conversely, those who do not are not from God. This is a Christological test, meaning it deals with what they believe about Jesus. Did He or did He not come in the flesh? Now, you may remember at the start of this study, we talked about these men who had left the church And they have not only left it, but they are still involved in it in the sense of trying to draw other people to follow after them. And part of what they were teaching, we said already, was this error concerning the full humanity of Jesus Christ. And the reason we know that in part is from these verses that we are looking at this morning. In some form or fashion, they were teaching that it just seemed like Jesus came in the flesh. He didn't really. There's always been this struggle throughout the history of Christianity as to how we can fully align the humanity of Jesus with the deity of Jesus. How can He be fully God and yet fully man? And because this is such a difficult issue, there have always been heresies that have arisen on one side or the other. But the incarnation, the theological term that speaks to the fact that God became man, is foundational to all of Christianity. It speaks of the eternal nature of Jesus. That is, He was not born in Bethlehem as you and I are born wherever it is you and I were born, because He has always existed. It speaks of the historical nature of His being. That is, He was a real man who was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And to deny all of this, also denied the atoning work on Calvary that Jesus did. Which is why this was such a serious doctrinal deception. To deny that Jesus had come into the flesh went right to the heart of what the gospel is all about. And in fact, left no gospel or good news at all. Now keep in mind a couple of things. First, John is not saying that merely saying these words one way or the other is the issue. He does not intend to communicate that if a teacher says, Jesus has come in the flesh, and he, that he's all right, or vice versa. If he says, Jesus did not come, then he is wrong. What I mean is, it's much more than a mere profession. Jesus himself said that many will come 
And they will say, Lord, didn't we do this? Or didn't we accomplish this in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Plus, the bulk of this letter of 1 John is dealing with the fact that their profession does not match their practice. That is, they are claiming to be new creatures in Christ, but they are not living like it. The facts of their lives belie their profession. So it's not merely, can someone repeat these words? Secondly, we need to be reminded that John is dealing with a specific situation here, which is why this is the test of confession that he uses. But that does not mean that this is the only test. I mean, we've already seen Paul make some more general statements about another gospel or another Jesus. So examining the confession of various teachers means ensuring that they teach and believe the core doctrines of the faith. Now here again, I must caution about those who would make every doctrine a core doctrine and thereby conclude that everyone is a heretic unless they line up exactly with, uh, with what I believe. That is not the point I'm trying to make. But generally speaking, if you can nail down what someone believes about Jesus, that is whether or not they are preaching and teaching the Jesus of the Scriptures rather than one of their own imagination. If you get that issue straight, then you'll have a very good idea about, say, 95% of the rest of what they teach. So we examine the confession of teachers and preachers. This is the doctrinal content of what they teach which of course means that you and I must know the Bible. And therein oftentimes lies the problem. That is, people don't know the truth, and therefore they cannot spot falsehood when it is right in front of them. Deuteronomy also warns us not just that a prophet's words must come true, but even if the prophet's words do come true, and yet he leads them to worship false gods, then the, he is not to be a true prophet of God. He is a false prophet. And likewise, again, just because someone carries a Bible and is well-spoken, if they lead people away from the true and biblical Jesus, they are to be avoided. So test number one, we must examine their confession. That is, what do they teach? And does it match up with the Bible? Secondly, we must examine their character meaning how do they live their lives? Now, I acknowledge that this particular test is not found in these six verses that we are looking at this morning. But we have seen them throughout this letter. The false teacher's lifestyle simply did not match up with their claim to be new creatures in Christ. So they weren't. Regardless of what they professed, they were not genuine believers. As a result, John tells us they were of their father, the devil. And they had His Spirit, that is the Spirit of the Antichrist, rather than the Holy Spirit of God. Now remember, we've seen that word Antichrist before. And John is not using it here, nor in chapter 2, to refer to the Antichrist who will come before the end of the ages. He is talking about the ones who oppose Christ now. And he's making the point that they are already in the world. Antichrist simply means opposed or against Christ. They are already active. Now, the combination of these two tests, examining the confession and examining their character, 
or what we might also call the doctrine and duty, that is what they believe and how they live, is one reason why getting your biblical teaching online can be dangerous. Now, of course, I realize I'm saying that when all of us are getting all of our biblical teaching online, save for our own personal Bible study. And I'm grateful that we do have this medium during this particular time in our history. And even in good times, there is certainly nothing wrong with supplementing your spiritual growth with the many great Bible teachers who are always online. They're not doing it just because of this. They always have their videos out there. But it was never meant to be a substitute for the local church. And that's something we must remember when these guidelines are opened up and we can come back to church. Doing what we're doing online is not a substitute for gathering together. And the reason why I say that, in part, it's not the only reason, but in part, because of what we're talking about this morning. I mean, if you hop around from one teacher to another online, it's very difficult to know the overall content of their teaching. That is their confession. So it's very hard for you to rightly examine their confession when you're only getting bits and pieces of their teaching. And certainly it's very difficult to examine their character when we are all well aware of the fact that our online personas can be very far from reality. Well, let me move on to the third test of healthy skepticism, and that is that we must examine their congregation. Now, by that, I do not mean just that we look at the numbers. There are some who would say that if the numbers are large, then that is an indication that they are faithful, and vice versa. But the fact is that by itself is not an adequate test. Verse 5 certainly seems to imply this. False teachers are of the world, and therefore the world is going to listen to them. And since the way is narrow, which means the majority of people are of the world, then it is possible, in fact probable, that false teachers can attract to themselves large audience and yet still be false teachers. So big buildings and large congregations do not necessarily mean that someone is faithful. Of course, the opposite is also the case. Just because someone is small or mid-sized doesn't mean they're faithful either. What I mean by examine or test their congregation, I mean look at the type of people they are attracting. Spiritually speaking, I'm not talking about racially, I'm not talking about economically, I'm talking about spiritually speaking, what kind of audience do they attract? Because generally speaking, good, solid teachers are going to attract followers who want to study and learn the Bible. And shallow teachers are going to replicate themselves in their followers. Now, all of this may sound hard to apply and certainly difficult to implement, but there is good reason to do it, and not just because we've already established that this is a biblical command. So I want to conclude by talking about the victory of healthy skepticism. Look again at verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, because, or for, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It is likely that you are familiar with that verse. Maybe you've even quoted it from time to time based on various circumstances in your life. But my guess is you didn't know it came from 1 John chapter 4 
and you certainly didn't know that it came in context of victory over uh, or victory through healthy skepticism or discernment. So this is not a verse that promises you you will not get the virus because you have the Spirit within you, or that if you do get the virus, you will beat it. This is not a promise of athletic success. This is not a promise of business or financial accomplishments. This is a promise of victory through the Spirit of God over those who would seek to lead us astray when we follow what John has been talking about. Which means we must consistently listen to the truth. In verse 6, John says that if you truly know God, you will listen to what I'm saying and not what those who have deserted the church and the faith are teaching. So you say, well, what does that mean for us? Am I saying that as long as you listen just to me, you'll be just fine? Well, no, I'm not. John was an apostle. I am far from it. It applies to us in two ways. One, we too are to listen to the words of the apostles as they are recorded for us in the Bible. So this is yet another reminder or command to study and to know God's Word, for this is His written revelation of Himself to us. But it also means we should listen to those who faithfully and correctly teach it. Now, again, that is not to say that any teacher or preacher is infallible. We all make mistakes, and we all have blind spots in our own theology and understanding of God. If you're looking for someone who agrees with you on everything, well, then that would be you. And you would be wrong about some things as well. So consistently listening to the truth then guides us as we overcome the false. And this, then, is the path to victory. Ingesting truth, which helps us to overcome the false. And allows us, then, to recognize false teaching and its teachers and remain faithful to the truth. So we started today by talking about how we can know whether we have the Spirit of God or some false spirit. And frankly, there is so much confusion about this that I'm very seriously considering a future sermon series, a sermon series in the very near future, dealing with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But John has gotten us off to a good start. I mean, look at how this section ends, the last part of verse 6. By this, that is, by all that we've been talking about this morning, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So not everyone who is spiritual or religious is necessarily from God or godly, which is why our spiritual lives must include healthy skepticism. Most of you know that I like to play golf occasionally, and I'm grateful that most of the golf courses have stayed open during this time. But there have been a few occasions when I'm playing a golf course that I'm not familiar with that I've actually hit a good shot, or at least one that I thought was a good shot, only to find out I had hit it in the wrong direction. Now, I'm not talking about when I try to hit a good shot and I hit it in the wrong direction. I do that a lot. I'm talking about when I'm aiming at a target and I actually hit it toward that target only to discover that I aimed at the wrong thing. 
My friends and I were playing a golf course that none of us were familiar with back about a year or so ago. And we got up to a particular hole that looked rather straightforward. That is, we looked out and there was a fairway that led to a green. And we thought, well, this is a straight hole. And so we all hit our tee shots and frankly, we all hit them pretty well. We were either in the fairway or very close to it. Only to drive up to our golf balls and discover that we were in the wrong fairway. The hole had actually taken a left and gone to a totally different green. And we had aimed at the wrong green and now we're blocked off from the green we were supposed to go to from a group of trees. And so what we thought to be a good shot turned out not so much because our aim was at the wrong target. The point is that if we are aiming at the wrong target, it doesn't really matter how accurate we are. So if someone is proclaiming a false gospel, it doesn't matter how articulate they are, how attractive or charismatic their personality is, or what they promise you in return. And that is why we need a healthy skepticism that allows us to know the difference between truth and error. And by the way, we don't do this alone. We do it together as the body of Christ through the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit of God because we have the Spirit of truth. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for the time we've had in Your Word today to consider this maybe confusing topic, and yet a, a very important topic. How do we know that we have the Spirit of God and are being led by that Spirit versus an evil or false spirit? Because, Lord, we know that there are many false prophets or teachers who have gone out and are deceiving those within the body of Christ. I pray that You would give us the ability to discern a healthy skepticism to know the difference between the true gospel, the true spirit, and the true Jesus, and anything else that comes our way. May you help us to so know your word that falsehood becomes much easier to spot. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just say in closing, again, I know we can't have a, an invitation like we normally have, but there is certainly nothing wrong with you responding to this message or to any work that the Spirit of God is doing in your life right there in your home. And having done that, we'd love to hear from you. So you can call us, text, email, and let us know what decision you've made. And then if it's one of the decisions that we often make public, like a desire to join the church or to be saved or to be baptized, when we get back together in the coming weeks, we can make that public. And we look forward to that time.